Well, it seems time has gone by rather quickly. Now, of course, that could be from my end. You may have a different perspective. But it seems as we were here Sunday, and now we're here uh, Wednesday and about to end our meeting. And so uh, I oftentimes say when we are fellowshipping and having a wonderful time in the Lord, time seems to, to, to slip away from us. And so I've had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time uh, here with you this week. And I uh, do hope that you have been in, as encouraged uh, as I have been encouraged uh, uh, by you, uh, do appreciate all the, 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 the wonderful comments and things that have been said uh, at the close of the lessons. But I'll tell you what I really appreciate. I was telling, uh, I believe, Brother Wayne this, this morning that, you know, we as preachers, we're going to get the good lesson. And I'm sure Bob will tell you that was a good lesson. And I, don't misunderstand me. I'm not complaining about that. Uh, but what I've noticed here this week is not just you have, that was a good lesson, but here's why I was encouraged by that lesson. There have been specific points that have been brought out, and, and you know, I, I agree with this point, and, and you know, that, that's something that, you know, I, I've thought about, or perhaps that, what that tells me is that this congregation is one that listens, and they listen intently, and there are points that are brought out that may benefit you, or things that perhaps you uh, may have already known. And when you get specific like that, that's greatly encouraging. And so that's what I've seen throughout the week. And uh, even had some young people come to me last night. And I always like to encourage the young people, you know, to, to write down verses that are said. Perhaps, you know, you said Jesus this many times or you said God that many times. Because really, as gospel preachers, that's kind of an assessment of what our lesson has been. We have our outlines and we have various things that we go by. But when a young person gives you a list of verses... Or you said Jesus this many times or that many times. It could say, you know, I probably need to say Jesus a little more than that. Or, wow, thank you. Because that's kind of a bird's eye view of uh, what they gained or gained from your lesson. And so I've even had some young people do that. And that's very, very encouraging. So young people, keep that up. We preachers need to know how much we're glorifying God when we're in the pulpit. And uh, that is uh, something that I believe is beneficial to all gospel preachers. I know I'm benefited from it. So. Uh, encourage the young people to do that. That's always a good thing. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to read verses 13 through 28. I know that's a number of verses, but it will help us to get a, get a sense of what we want to talk about tonight. And what we want to talk about tonight is what does it mean to be a Christian, to be a member of the body of Christ? And for those who are not here, uh, that are here perhaps that are not members of the body of Christ, I hope that you'll be able to see the obligations and the severity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if we are here and we are Christians, which most of us are, I'm sure, it helps us to see or get a perspective of what God requires of us and what Jesus Christ said he would establish. And so we begin in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or the other, one of the other prophets. And he said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell uh, no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go uh, unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto him, unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense to me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. But what, um, uh, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For the Son of Man shall come in the the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his deeds. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There is so much in these verses. Uh, These verses are so monumental and significant to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ, a member of his body, a member of the church of Christ. Jesus Christ, I believe, expounds what is required and, of course, what uh, he will require of those who will claim to be his followers. Now, as we consider that and look at the subject entitled Upon This Rock, there is first, uh, first brother, some clarifications that I believe we need to, to, to look at. Now, we've talked about this throughout the week, but I want us to look at these things again. For example, the, the, the word church. There, there's, there, there are great misconceptions about what the church is. Now, of course, some believe that the church is an organization, uh, just simply an organization. Some believe the church is a building. Uh, some believe it's, it's many other things. It's somewhat like a fraternal order and, and various things of that nature. So there are many aspects and beliefs about what the church actually is. Uh, some believe that the church can extend beyond even the borders that Jesus Christ expounds here about the kingdom. But nevertheless, the Bible tells us that the church, as far as the New Testament is concerned, like we talked about last night, the idea of ecclesia, the called out ones. And we talked about last night as well as now that the church, the word church simply means an assembly, an assembly. And we noted uh, some verses in Acts chapter 19, verse 32, 39, and 41 uh, last night, that when we look at the word from a secular sense, in other words, an assembly of citizens that have been called out to conduct the business of a city, it gives us the idea of what it means from a spiritual standpoint. As we see in Hebrews 12 and verse number 23, to the church of the firstborn, and to God, the judge of all men, and to spirits of just men made perfect. We even see in James chapter 2 and verse number 2, James says, if anyone come into your assembly or literally into your, uh, uh, into your congregation, uh, that's kind of the word synagogue in a sense, but uh, uh, not to show the respect of persons. Well, once again, we see that from a spiritual sense, it's the gathering together of God's people to conduct the business of the Lord. And not all times are we conducting ourselves as a local church. It's when we come together as a local church that we're conducting the business of the Lord as a local church. We even noted last night that individually we have spiritual works that we must carry out even as individual Christians, members, members of the church or the body of Christ in the universal sense. But, you know, even in the Old Testament, I believe the principle uh, uh, existed. And, and the word, even though it wasn't the same word, the, the idea, the concept existed even in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the word is basically, there is a word rather that's Basically an equivalent to the idea of ecclesia, even in the Old Testament. The idea is simply a secular general way, as we've noted uh, with the New Testament word, both can be understood in that aspect. For example, in Genesis chapter 49 and verse number 6, Moses writes, O my soul, come not thou into uh, into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united, For in their anger, they slew a man and in their self will, they dig down a hole. And that word assembly is the the Hebrew word, I believe, is the equivalent of what we find in the New Testament. Another instance in Jeremiah 5 and verse number 9. And note how the word is translated here as far as the King James Version is concerned. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord, and shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this. And so we see a, a group of people, again, in a secular sense, but note the, the word, how it's used. And in uh, Ezekiel chapter 32 and verse 3, Thus saith the Lord God, I will therefore spread out my net over thee with a company of many people, and they shall bring thee up in my net. So we see, just as with the New Testament, when we look at it from a secular sense, we also get an idea of what's understood. But now from a spiritual standpoint, in Exodus chapter 16 and verse number 3, Moses Moses would write, And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh uh, flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth to the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. 
Now we see a gathering of God's people with hunger. And so this is an assembly of God's people as God had brought them out of Egypt. And Numbers 14 and verse number 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And so we see a gathering together of God's people into one place. Stephen would talk about the church in the wilderness using the Greek word, the Greek idea to refer back to the nation of Israel as they were assembled or gathered into one place in the wilderness. Now, Jesus Christ said, upon this rock, I will build to make or erect in Matthew chapter seven and verse twenty four. Our Lord would state, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. We're talking about erecting something, building something, putting something up. In Hebrews 3 and verse number 4, for every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Of course, the Hebrew writer uh, really gives us, uh, gives a... our uh, atheistic uh, neighbors and, and co-workers, a, a good verse here. Every house is built by some man. So don't say something came from nothing. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's foolishness. That's, that's, that's just not right. Did your house come from nothing? <laughs> no. And so why would they say the earth and the universe came from nothing if their house didn't come from nothing? But anyway, that's another lesson for another day. But nevertheless, the idea of build means to make or to erect. Then we see the idea of uh, of to build, to build, to to make a wreck, to to actually initiate the building process itself. In Ephesians two and verse number nineteen through twenty two, we noted this verse last week, uh, last night rather, and says, "Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone." In whom the whole building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in which ye also are builded together, literally builded up together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And so to build is to erect, to establish. Now, in another sense, we find Jude saying in Jude and verse 20, but ye beloved, Building upon yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, building, adding to, implementing, building up is the idea. In Second Peter, First Peter, chapter two, verses two through verse number nine. Notice what Peter says here. Let's turn there. First Peter, chapter two, verses two through verse number nine. First Peter, chapter two. Verses two through verse number nine. Now, Jude talks about us building up our most in our most holy faith. Now, we, we, we've noted these verses actually a few times. When you go back to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verses five through six, we see what God purposed, what God intended for his people. And again, as we've even talked about last night, there's an intended purpose for God's people, Jesus people, even in our day and time. But now notice what Peter says, how we're to build up in this most holy faith. Now, Peter would say in Second Peter chapter one that we're to, again, add to our faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, to, to temperance, brotherly love and the brotherly love, kindness and, and so on and so forth. So we build up in that way as well. But I want us to know what Peter says here in first Peter chapter two. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. Now watch verse two. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow there, uh, thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him should not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, 
being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye, there's a contrast, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the idea of a peculiar people means a redeemed people, a bought people. And Christians are truly that, a bought people, a redeemed people. We are a holy priesthood. And we offer up those spiritual sacrifices. And you know that's an allusion to the nation of Israel. The priest offered up sacrifices. Of course, these were sacrifices of animals, but they offered up sacrifices to God in his temple. In his temple. Not just a temple, but in his temple. You see, you cannot take the sacrifices of God and go to idolatrous temples and offer up sacrifices and claim that they are sacrifices to God. It had to only be in his temple, the place that he designated those sacrifices are to be offered. Well, the same thing is true with the New Testament church. Nobody would deny that you cannot go to the temple of Diana. Or, or Artemis or, or, or whoever it may be, Athenian, say, look, we're offering up sacrifices to God. That couldn't happen. It's only one place and one people who could offer up those sacrifices. And so we see so much to be glean, uh, gleaned by what we find in the Old Testament. You know, when we talk about building up, the Apostle Paul said he was a master builder. Why was Paul a master builder? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, the Apostle Paul says this. According to the grace of God, which is given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builder thereupon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones or wood or hay or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it should be revealed by fire. I believe it would be made manifest by judgment and we, it would do well for us to make that judgment here while on earth. We have the means by which we can judge if our works are according to God's word. If we built upon the foundation, which Jesus Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church. If we built something artificial, something that has not been ordained to be used as building material, we can make that judgment now. We can say, now, wait a minute. Is that in the Bible? Do the scriptures teach that? And beloved, if it's not, or if it doesn't, we need to abstain from that. So I believe that's why Paul said it's going to be revealed by fire. And it in uh, the fire, rather, should try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as so by fire. In other words, we have the ability and means right now. To ascertain, to discern if what we're building upon is that which Christ has commanded us to build upon. And let's just be honest about it. There are so many, 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 many different churches and temples in this world. Jesus says there is only one that he built. There's only one people that he has established, as we'll see in just a few moments. And so everybody can't be right. Everybody is not right. Now, it could be, could be, perhaps I'm wrong or we're wrong. But the Bible will reveal that to us. And so far as I can tell, guys, when we look at what the Bible teaches and we do what the Bible says we ought to be done, we're pleasing God. But that's the only way that we know whether our work is to be sustained or whether it is to be burned as if by fire or judgment. Now, Jesus said he would establish his people. As we've already noted, we're talking about a people, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, not a structure, not an organization, not an earthly, uh, whatever the case may be, but a people, a special people. And Jesus Christ told Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. I believe the rock is the fact, the truth that Jesus Christ is. Jesus was rather and is the Christ, the son of the living God. It's upon this rock that Jesus Christ would build his church or establish his people. And the gates of hell, not even death, would prevent him from doing it. Because, of course, as he would say later, he would arise from the dead. He would establish his people. 
Again, I refer back to the Old Testament just to make reference. Now, you know, the reason I like to go back to the Old Testament, which was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Oftentimes, people, when they look at the Old Testament, people have the idea that back in the Old Testament, God didn't play. Oh, God was serious back then. Well, I'm here to tell you serious now. And oftentimes, when you go back to the Old Testament, people can oftentimes understand that simply. For example, when you say, you know, the priests had to wash themselves before they would go into the temple and offer sacrifice. There was a big basin in front of the temple where they had to wash themselves. Yeah. What happened if they were to go in the temple and but not wash themselves and, and try to offer sacrifices? They were in trouble. Well, what about now? If people try to say that they are the people of God, but they don't wash themselves in the blood of Christ and have all of their sins forgiven and be added to this church, this temple, these people that Jesus Christ said he would establish. What about now? Well, see, now you don't have to do that. Oh, no, now. As if God, well, God didn't play then, but he kind of plays now. He's not really serious as he used to be. I, I would suggest and encourage you to read the book of Hebrews and see that he's very serious. As a matter of fact, this new covenant has been established upon better promises, a better hope, because it's a better sacrifice. And to be taken more seriously than even the old. Because God offered his only begotten son. So I like to go to the Old Testament. I think it helps. You know, the New Testament refers back to it quite a bit. Peter talks about baptism, talks about the flood. Get the connection, Peter's saying? You see by the flood, now look at baptism. The like figure went to baptism, but also now save us. You see that connection? If you believe in the flood, you ought to believe in baptism. I believe in the flood, but I reject baptism. You don't really believe in the flood. Wonderful. Masterful the way God reveals these things. But in Judges chapter 20 and verse number 2. And the chief of the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of of the people of God, 400,000 footmen that drew a sword. Then in Psalms 47 and verse number nine, this, this idea of a people, his people, the princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong unto God. He is greatly exalted. And then in Acts 13 and verse number 17, a New Testament passage, the God of this people, Israel, uh, Paul would say as he was in uh, Antioch of Pisidia, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with the high arm brought them out of it. Who? The God of this people, Israel, or the people of Israel. And so Jesus Christ, when he states this upon this rock, I will build my church, was making a monumental statement. Because according to the minds of the Jews and, and what they had uh, uh, been accustomed to, the Bible said that the Israelites, God's people, they were God's people, God the Father's people. But now here Jesus is. Jesus of Nazareth. The, the, in their minds, the, the son of Joseph and Mary was saying that he was going to establish his people. Who does he think he is, as we noted yesterday? This was a monumental statement. It was one that the Jews had to accept or they could not be saved. God has designated his people. And again, we know the Old Testament, Leviticus 26 and verse 12. And I will walk among them and will be your God and ye shall be my people. And now Jesus Christ is saying my people. In Ezekiel chapter 32 and verse number 7, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be with their God and they shall be my people. You see, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 15 said this. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Jesus says in John 6 and verse number 39. And this is the father's will which has sent me. That of all which he had given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. Note the authority that has been given to Jesus. I will build my church. I will have my own people. In John 16, verses 13 through 15. 
Jesus says this. How be it when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. Again, referring to the Holy Spirit. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Note. What has been given to Jesus the Christ. You know, you may recall that as Jesus Christ was about to be crucified and going into the city of Jerusalem, he would spend time with his apostles, his disciples. And it would be in John 14, 15 and 16, as well as 17. We find some very, very uh, serious things that Jesus Christ has said to his disciples, some very profound things. One such thing was found in chapter 17 in verses 9 through 10 in the true Lord's Prayer, where he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine and all are thine and thine are mine and I am glorified in them. Now, of course, in this context, he's talking about the disciples here, the apostles. But notice in verse 20 and 21. Neither pray I for these alone, talking about the apostles, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. Now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. He already said, those that are thine are mine. So he says, I'm not praying for them alone, those that are thine that you've given to me. I'm not praying for them alone, but I'm praying for all that shall believe on me through their word, the ones that you've given me, that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You see all the sectarianism, all the division, all the religious confusion we see in this world is not an indicator that Jesus Christ was sent by God. When we say, hey, you have your way, I have my way, you in your church, I'm in my church. Hey, God's just going to save us all. He loves us all. That is not a manifestation of the fact that Jesus was sent by God the Father. It's not. The vision has never been an indicator of God's will or a manifestation of God's will. That's why Paul says the things that he says in the churches in places such as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11. The vision can never show God's love. Now Paul would say in chapter 11 it's necessary to show they which are approved But it's not what God willed, nor he ordained. You know, it's amazing when you look again back at the Old Testament, there were 12 sons of Jacob, but they were all united by a common blood, a common seed and a common law and a common God. But it's amazing when you look at the years of silence, when God gave no direct prophetic utterances and no sent no prophets or gave no direct revelation that all the Jewish sects and denominations would develop. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Herodians. All would develop at that time. And they are nowhere found in the law of Moses. None of those groups are found there. That's never what God intended. Never. God never wanted that. And so you wonder, well, where'd they come from? People believe that their form of religion was the best. Pharisees thought they were straightest to the law, and of course, they would be the ones who most adamantly opposed the Son of God. You know, you know, Sadducees, they had their thing. They didn't believe in the resurrection, angels, or spirits. Herodians were kind of the conformists of the day. <laughs> and just on and on and on. Everybody had their own thing. And they would, would become their own groups because of their own things. And I think we can see some parallels in our day and time to that. Jesus' people or his church must be his people, his church. We noted that in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through verse 19. These are my, upon this rock I will build my church. Who do men say that I the son of man am? And of course, Peter will confess, not the first time, by the way. 
That thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We find that also in John 6 and verse 69. Peter would make that confession. And then in Matthew chapter 3, you may remember when the forerunner, the one who would prepare the way, would come into the scene. The Jews would say to him, hey, wait a minute. You know, who do you think you are? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is in hand. And John would tell them explicitly. Say not within yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. But the axe is laid to the root of the trees. In other words, don't don't come saying that you deserve this inheritance, this blessing, this salvation of being citizens in the kingdom that is to come. No, God is able of these stones to raise up and raise up uh, children unto Abraham. You must believe in the Christ, the son of God, or you have no inheritance. You have no hope. Don't don't come here talking about what you deserve now and what's owed you. In John chapter one. Verses 1 through 2. Remember what Jesus says here. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. We all know the verse, but let's go ahead and read. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now notice, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now that's talking about Jesus the Christ. The word was with God. And the word was God. In verse 14, we find that word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And remember, John says, I am not that light. I am not the one. I am not he. That is he. Behold, the lamb of God, he would say. And yet people in our day and time will turn right around and say, no, John was the man. That's amazing. And clearly John said, I am not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 14, as we talk about God's people, Jesus' people, and God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body. For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, the the church that Jesus built has to be his people. And understand, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You, you can't run around saying, hey, look, I do what I want to do. This is my body. You know, the world tells you in a heartbeat, especially when it comes to the subject of abortion. This is my body. I can do what I want with my body. Understand, the Bible does not teach that. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You are his. You have been bought with a precious, precious price. You are a servant, a bond servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. You have to be his. He owns you. He possesses you. He tells you what to do. He tells you where to go. He tells you what to think. And if we don't like that, nobody tells me what to do. And many people have that idea. Not even God. Well, you can't be his people. You you, you can't. And that's the reason most people aren't his people. Because Jesus ain't going to tell them where they can go. Where they go to church. How they're going to worship. What they have to do to be saved. God don't tell me what to do. That's the attitude people have. That's why that is so, so devastating and destructive. That's why we plead with you. Submit yourself to God. Don't tell God what you're going to do. Let him tell you what you ought to do. He created you. We didn't create him. Humanity is the epitome most times of arrogance. How dare us? How dare the people who eat God's creation, drink God's creation, live on God's creation, look at God's creation, say that there's no creator. But they do. Knowing full well, they can't even make the sun rise or sun. They can't even stop death. And yet you think you have the power to tell God what you're going to do? 
All right. He's going to let you. But there'll be consequences. Eternal consequences. We're not our own. We are his. And so we have to be his people. That's why when we become a child of God, when we confess Jesus Christ, when we believe all that the Bible has to to say about him, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, we are literally relinquishing ourselves to his will. And if we're not willing to do that, we can't be his disciples. He only gives entrance into the kingdom. You know, you look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse number 19. And I will give you keys to the kingdom. I have the keys. I'll give them to you. He tells Peter and the the apostles. Now, of course, that 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 key when that door was open on Pentecost. And even before Pentecost, people had the opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ. Of course, that he was the one who. Who was to come, he would die, he would be buried, he would be raised again. But Jesus had the key. Of course, you go back to 2 Samuel, as we noted in our lesson on Sunday, and looking at the promise that God had made to David of an everlasting kingdom that would be through his seed, we clearly see what he's talking about. But you know, look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. He has the keys to the kingdom. You know why? It's because of who he is. We already know that John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, but notice what the prophet Isaiah said about who Jesus is, who he was, and who he is. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. The everlasting father, the prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon the kingdom to order it and to establish it it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform it. That's why he gives he he gives the keys. We, 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 We don't make our own duplicate set of keys. Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom. He gives means of entrance into the kingdom because he's God. He is God and has all authority. You see, his people must not only be his people, but Jesus' people, as his people, must be a committed people. And Jesus tells us that. Look at verse 21 through 26, going back to Matthew 16. Verses 21 through 26 of Matthew chapter 16. We must be a committed people. You see, Jesus says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now watch Peter's response here. Then Peter took him and said, be, uh, began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from me, Lord, this shall not be unto you. And of course, we remember the response of Jesus, get behind, get behind the, uh, me, Satan, but thou an offense to me, for thou savest not the things of God, but the things that be of men. And Jesus Christ tells them, look, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For who, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Well, I need to stop right there. I'm getting into my next point. But up to verse 26, we must be a committed people. Now notice, Jesus Christ has committed himself to the will of God. And when Peter would actually say something that was contrary to that will, and we would probably all have that idea, look, I'm going to go. I'm the son of God. I've shown I'm the son of God. You have just confessed that I'm the son of God, and I'm going to die at the hands of the chief priests, elders, and scribes. As a matter of fact, the Jews are going to kill me. They're going to deliver me to Pontius Pilate. Remember Acts chapter 4 says that Pontius Pilate, the Jews as well as the people, the Gentiles rather, were all responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And so we see that Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, no. No, be it far. That's not going to happen to you. That shouldn't happen to you. You're the son of God. How can that, why why would that even uh, be allowed to happen? But now, as the people of God, we are committed to his cause. And Jesus rebukes Peter because, you see, Peter made a statement that wasn't according to the will of God. 
And many of us probably would make that same statement. And more than likely, we do make that same statement when it comes to the persecution that we have to endure. Many of us believe that as we or because we are Christians, we ought not to suffer. The Christians are the ones that love people, that do good to people, that help people. Why should we have to suffer persecution? As a matter of fact, I believe because of the good that I do that people ought to love me. I shouldn't have to suffer. I shouldn't have to go through these things. Why do people hate me when I love them? And I just don't believe you should have to do that. I believe Peter, to a great degree, was being self-serving. I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that member sometimes, again, talking about what's required. That You say, hey, man, let's, let's go over to such and such or such and so and so place and, and uh, go talk to people, try to get some Bible studies or, or try to get some uh, uh, tracks passed out. Or some, man, you don't need to go over there. Well, no, man, how about you come go with me? Uh, I think it's a good opportunity for us. I, I think both of us should go there. Man, you don't have to do that. You do enough already. You, you know, let somebody else do that. And, and oftentimes people are saying that to you because really in the back of their minds, they don't want to do it themselves. It's like the person who says, man, you shouldn't have to. You don't need to clean this or, or do that or take out that. No, no, no. I'll be far from you. You shouldn't have to do that. Y'all know the people at work who, who work with coworkers, you know how that can happen. And the problem is they don't think you should do it because they don't want to do it. And I believe that was kind of sense with Peter. Because remember, Peter is going to deny the Lord not long from now. We have to be committed to his cause. Remember, his cause is to manifest the love of God through his sacrifice. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and give his life. As a ransom for many. He did not come to be ministered to, to be served. He came to serve. And see, if we're going to be the people of God, we must be committed to service. We must be committed to what God says we ought to be committed to. Remember, the love of God is made manifest through the offering of Jesus Christ. John says in 1 John 3, verses 5 through 10. And in verse, uh, verse uh, chapter 4, rather in verse 10, John says, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, we are to manifest God's love, and that can only be done by sacrifice. Sacrifice. And let, let, me, let me warn you. Let me warn you. Giving does not entirely equal sacrifice. Look at Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Giving, giving, giving does not necessarily or does not inherently equal sacrifice. See, oftentimes we give, we give plenty of things. I'll give you my time as long as you don't infringe on mine or what I want to do. I give you a lot of things as long as it doesn't take from from what I really believe I want or need to have. We'll give, we'll give, we'll give. But now true sacrifice is different in Luke chapter 21. And he looked up and saw the rich man, a rich man, rather casting their gifts into the treasury as Jesus Christ would behold the Jews giving. And notice what he was saying. He saw a certain poor widow casting him thither two mites. And he said, of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. It wasn't in the amount. It wasn't in the amount. It was in the heart, the mind. For all these have of their abundance cast into the, uh, cast unto the offerings of God. But she of her uh, use, a penury rather, have cast in all the living that she had. There's a difference in giving and sacrifice. See, giving is even as far as time. We can give some of our time, but sacrifice means I have no more time. I have literally sacrificed myself to God. I have given myself to his will, not partly, not partially, not at certain times of the day, not at certain times of the week, not at certain times of the year, but I am no longer mine. That, that's the difference in true commitment. Paul says in Romans 12 and verses 1 through 3, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. See, that, that's sacrifice. 
He says in Colossians chapter three, uh, uh, mine just went blank on me. Excuse me. <laughs> Colossians chapter three, verses one through four. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth, for you are dead. And your life is hid in God, who when Christ, which is our life, shall appear, then we shall appear with him in glory. You are gone. You're out of here. It's no longer you. It's him. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But I live not. Nevertheless, I live yet uh, live rather. But by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is talking about sacrifice. I am, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's sacrifice. And if we're going to be God's people, we have to commit ourselves to the cause of Christ. Jesus Christ cannot be a part of our life. He has to be our life. Our faith, our Christianity can't be... Some of my life, it has to be the totality of my life. Even the liberty as, as the followers of Jesus Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ is governed by sacrifice. Why? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 28, 29, why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? Even the liberty that we have is still based upon other people. Peter would come to know that one day. The very person who said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and would deny Jesus three times, as foretold by Jesus, would one day know that he would have to sacrifice himself. Jesus told him he was going to be girded up and uh, taken where he would not want to go. And then Peter, this, this Peter who has gone through all of these things, and notice how Peter has matured in the faith. The apostle Peter, who was definitely imperfect, we know. But how Peter says his whole responsibility was by in this tabernacle was to bring them in remembrance, knowing that he must shortly put off this tabernacle as the Lord had showed me. Peter says, I'm about to die. The same Peter who denied Jesus Christ and would stand up on Pentecost and tell a multitude of Jews. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus who you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. But then we find Galatians 2. Peter had a weak moment. As he would give in to the Jews who would come from Jerusalem and literally would draw himself from his Gentile brethren. But that same Peter would write this epistle and say, look, I'm about to die. Therefore, I'm going to put all these things always in your remembrance. In other words, you're going to have access to them always. That's a person who realized what it meant to be committed to Christ. Now, finally, as Jesus people, we must be hopeful. We must be hopeful as the. G, uh, the followers, rather than disciples of Jesus Christ as his church, we must be a hopeful people, a hopeful people. Paul said in Romans 8, and verse number 24, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth. Why doth he yet hope for it? Remember, we have committed our lives. We have died so that we can live again spiritually to a God that we have not seen. One that we have not placed our eyes on like the apostles. They, 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 they saw him. Their hands handled the word of life, John says. We have not seen Jesus. We have not seen God. And yet we have committed our life to him. Why? Because we believe what the word of God says. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 6. For without faith it's impossible to please him. But they that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a reward of them that diligently seek him. We haven't seen God. We haven't shaken God's hand. We haven't touched God. But yet we believe in God to the point that we were willing and are willing to give our lives for God, for Christ. I've never seen Jesus in the eye, uh, face to face. But I most certainly have seen him through the pages of inspiration. And we have committed our lives to somebody that we believe died for us and gives us hope. This is what Jesus taught. When you go back and look at verses 27 and 28 of Matthew chapter 16, 
Jesus taught that his people must be a people of hope. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We have hope for the day that we will be with our Lord. Either we will leave this earth in death and go into paradise because we've been faithful to God and God is faithful to those who diligently seek him. Or we are here when the Lord comes back. We have faith in that. We believe that we govern our lives based on that. We have changed everything based on that fact. And as the children of God, as the disciples of Jesus, only those who are willing to sacrifice it all. Not lay hold on something from the past just saying, oh, it might be true, but it might not. No, we give ourselves fully and totally over to God, even though we haven't seen him. Because we believe what Jesus Christ said and what he had done. Those who shall believe on me through their word. This is what Jesus Christ taught. And this is what we believe. In Romans 10, verses 8 through 11, the Apostle Paul says this to the church at Rome, a church that he had never been to, by the way, when he wrote it. Well, by the time he had written this epistle. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith, which is which is uh, which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth in him should not be ashamed. We believe in God. Paul would go on to say and uh, had said previously rather in Romans six and verses two through five. And no, many people quote this verse. If you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you're going to be saved. But they lose sight of the totality of God's counsel and God's commands. Remember to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead means that you're going to act upon that belief. Paul had already said that those who believe in this fact will act upon it. For in Romans 6 and verses 2 through 5, go, uh, God forbid. Of course, he says that we sin, uh, continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? Know ye not. That so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul would tell the church at Colossae this way in Colossians 2, verse 11 through 12. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. That is what it means to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. We're just not talking about some historical facts. We're talking about a commitment, a change, a transformation of life. And if we believe that God raised Jesus, we believe too that he will raise us. That when we come up out of that water, all of our past sins are washed away. Why? Because the Bible says so. In Romans chapter 4, verses 21 through chapter 5 and verse number 1. Note when Paul is talking about Abraham. Abraham had the proper faith. Paul says, and being fully persuaded that God, I'm sorry, that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Again, talking about God. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone. That it uh, that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if there's that word again. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who also was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's believing that God had raised up Jesus from the dead. Jesus said there were some there who would not taste of death till they saw the son of uh, uh, Jesus, the son brother coming in his kingdom. You know, what's interesting about that statement, there were some standing there who would not taste of death until they saw him coming. But there were some there that. There's some of us. 
that may not be here when Jesus Christ comes back. There are some of us who perhaps will. But the bottom line simply is this. Are we willing to commit ourselves into his hands? Are we willing to trust the promises of God and prepare for whether we're there when he does or whether we're not there when he does? Whatever the case may be, we will be with him through Jesus Christ. I end our lesson in Titus 2 and verses 11 through 14. Upon this rock I will build my church. I will establish my people. I will have my own people. A people who will be my people. A people who are committed and a people that is hopeful. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus in the Isle of Crete. says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that we, now watch this, might redeem, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous Of good works. There it is. He gave himself. That he may have us. Now. The question I leave with with us tonight. Is he gave himself. That he may have us. Does he have me? Am I his? Am I his? Or am I still my own? As the people of God, we must forever strive while we are here upon this earth to not be our own men, our own women, but to simply be the people of Christ, of God, and to properly represent him in all that we say and do, to serve our master with all the service we can muster, because most certainly I think we would all agree he is deserving of our total allegiance, our total Life. My life should not be mine, but it is His. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, that's a people. As Paul said, not seeds of many, but as of one, even Christ. Everybody who says they're a child of God is not so. We can only go by the Bible to see if we are. The Bible says, as we've noted, we must believe. We must have faith in Christ. Faith in God and faith in Christ are synonymous. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Am I a child of God by what the word says? Not my own belief, not what the world tells me, not what so-and-so says, but by what God says in his word. Based upon that belief, I'm willing to turn away from every single thing that is contrary to God. He gave all for me. I'm going to give all for him. I'm going to stop doing the things that he commands me not to do. And I'm going to begin to do the things that he commands me to do. I'm going to totally submit myself and give myself over to him. As a matter of fact, I'm going to die to myself that I might live for him. And then we're willing to confess him before men. Confess him, acknowledge our belief and trust in him to the point that I'm willing to die for him. And then we're to be baptized, fully immersed in water as an act of obedience of faith to God for the remission of our sins. That everything we've ever done contrary to God is washed away. You are raised up a new creature. You have the perfect standing with God through Jesus Christ. And when you come up with that water, you are raised a new creature in Christ. To walk in the newness of life. To be faithful to God. Now God knows in his infinite wisdom that we are not perfect. We are not infallible. We're going to sin. We're going to fall short of God's glory. We're we're, we're just not perfect like Jesus was. But we can be perfected in him. And God expects that. So when we sin, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And the blood of his son Jesus Christ will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So God does not expect us to be flawless or perfect in the sense of being infallible, but he does expect us to be perfected in Christ. And that means faithful. 
And so if you're here today and you're not a child of God, you're not a member of the church of Christ, you're not a member of the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, we implore you, we beseech you to make the decision today, right now, to become a child of God that you may have the hope that is so expounded in the verses that we've noted tonight. And if as a child of God, your relationship uh, with God has been separated by sin, you're living in sin and you know it. But somehow you believe that God is going to make you an exception. Remember, we talked about exceptionalism. I want you to know that the Bible says he will not. And so you have an opportunity given by your God, the creator who has provided to us this day to make it right with him through and because of his son, Jesus Christ. So you have opportunity now, right now. To make it right with God. If sin has separated you. If we can help you in that endeavor. We encourage you to come as we stand and as we sing.